And let me pray before we get started. Father, you spoke uh, thunderous, rolling words on this earth over 3,000 years ago. And Jews there on the plains of Sinai heard you in, in fear and trembling. And Lord, we need your word as much today as they did then. Your word brings life and freedom and truth that sets captives free. And we ask that by your spirit this morning you'd make real the life and love and redemption in your son, the Lord Jesus, and you would speak to each of us about where we're at in our relationship with you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I get into this morning's teaching, a brief clarification from last week. Last week we started an 11-week series called The Ten Words. Last week was the introduction, so we've got ten weeks, one week for each of the Ten Commandments out of Exodus 20. Uh, I had mentioned that all of those ten words were reaffirmed in the New Testament, and I don't think I adequately or clearly uh, mentioned the caveat on that is the fourth commandment to keep Sabbath is not reaffirmed in that same way in the New Testament. That was on your study sheet and was in my study notes, but I don't think that I gave adequate clarity to that verbally, so just FYI, and we'll make that clear here in a few weeks. Uh, 1 Kings 18 is the story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You know, I'm struck oftentimes as I go through an Old Testament story especially, they ought to be making these things into movies. You know, this is, these stories, they're as good as it gets. You know, you think about them, see them in your mind, this is as good as it gets. Well, certainly, 1 Kings 18 is one of those kinds of stories, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you remember, at this time in Israel's history, it's a divided nation, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and wicked King Ahab and his wicked queen, Jezebel, are ruling there in the north. And they do not worship Yahweh. They worship Baal and Asherah, or Ashtoreth. And Baal, uh, called by different names in different cultures in that day, but Baal was the god of thunder and lightning and mountains and rain. And his consort in the gods was Asherah. And so it was thought that if you worship the male and the female deity, you'd produce fertility in the earth for people and for crops. And so in the midst of this pagan worshiping slash Yahweh culture of Israel in the north, along comes the prophet Elijah. And he confronts Baal because he says there's going to be no rain here until I say so. I'm Yahweh's prophet and I'm ending the rain until Yahweh's prophet says it's falling again. This is a direct confrontation of the god Baal. Now, three years into that, of course, the land, uh, you know, it's a tough time. No rain for three years. We've got some farmers in here. That, this is not a good thing. Elijah shows back up and he confronts King Ahab and he says, I want to challenge you and your gods to a duel of the gods. And this is the thing. We'll go up to Mount Carmel. It's a raised point right above the Mediterranean Ocean. And you and your prophets on one side for Baal and me for Yahweh on the other side. And we'll have a, a duel of the gods. And Elijah said this in 1 Kings eighteen twenty one to Ahab and the nation. 
He said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And so Elijah's contest is going to be, each group goes up to the mountaintop, they arrange a sacrifice. There's going to be a bull or an ox, they're going to cut it up, put it on the wood for the offering, put that on an altar, and they're going to call out to their gods, respectively. And Elijah says, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And remember, Baal not only thunder and rain, but lightning. So they're going to call for the lightning God to send down fire from heaven. And Elijah's going to do the same thing. So the day comes, they all show up. Baal, his guys start first. So they cut up the ox, they put it on the wood, they put it on the altar. This is in the morning. And they start calling out for Baal, you know, oh Baal, send the fire. Send down the fire. And they, they call and they call and they call some more. And this is going on through the morning. And Elijah starts mocking them, you know, and he says, you know, maybe he's busy, maybe he can't hear you, you know, call a little louder. So they start cutting themselves, it says, until the blood is gushing out from the, from the prophets of Baal. You know, Baal, Baal, come on. They're desperate. They're dancing, cutting, gushing blood. And I love this verse in verse 29. Uh, they raved. The prophets of Baal were the first ravers. They raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. No voice. No answer. No one paid attention. You know, where is Baal? So, Elijah, it's his turn. So he cuts up the ox, lays it on the wood, lays it on the altar. Then beyond that, he has a trench made around the altar. And then he has these guys with water, and they douse the sacrifice and the wood and the altar and fill the trench with water. They do this three times. Now, the prophets of Baal have been after this all day. Elijah gets it ready, and then he says, Answer me, O Yahweh. Answer me that this people may know that you, Yahweh, are God, that you have turned their heart back again. One simple prayer. The fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood. That'd be pretty good. Consumed the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said... Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. The God who answers by fire, he's the one. In our multicultural society, not too unlike the days of Elijah, any and every God is considered acceptable by the larger culture as long as you don't claim that your God is the only God. We can all get along, we can agree to disagree, as long as no one claims that their God is really God, or the realist God, the God who makes a lie of every other God and claim to any other God and every other religion. So in Elijah's day, he issued a challenge to the muddle-minded multiculturists, how long will you be double-minded, the God who answers by fire, he is God, and if he is God, Worship him. The God who acts in space and time, he is God. The God who displays himself in power, he is the real God. 
great challenge in Elijah's day, certainly in ours as well. The God who acts in space and time, the God who invades history in power, he is the real God. And to know the true God is by necessity to have done with all other false or pseudo-gods. So who is God and how will we know? Let me set the setting for this again briefly before we get into the first three verses. We talked about this last time in the introduction, but it just bears repeating. You remember when God gives these ten words, Israel is circled around rocky Mount Sinai. They've come out of Egypt. They're around this rocky mountain out on the plain. And the lightning is flashing. Visually, just think of this. You can go to the one of the Google Earth things. You can see this. It's good. You can put yourself right there and see what it looks like. So they're circling the Rocky Mountain. Lightning is flashing. The flame Moses saw, you remember in the burning bush in Exodus 3? Well, now that flame in a bush, it's turned to a flame that's engulfing the mountain itself. The smoke is rolling up into the heavens, just like a multiplied version of the smoke in Genesis 15 when God made the covenant, an earlier covenant, with Abraham. So visually, this is just overwhelming. It's stunning. Feeling, though, as they're standing there, the earth is literally trembling beneath their feet. It says the mountain is shaking. It would feel like an earthquake was going on under your feet. And then the sound also, there's thunder rolling out. There's a trumpet sound that just gets louder and louder. And then God's own voice booms out over the plains. The Jews heard the ten words. That This is what they hear. Now, after God gives them the ten words, they say, Moses, you speak to us for God because we can't put up with more of this. We're going to die if this continues. But this is what they heard, the first ten words. So the display of God's power and glory here is arguably the most impressive display seen and heard on the earth. This would have been simply overwhelming, and God meant it to. When I think of this in my own mind, uh, smaller scale, uh, the scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy and company get to the wizard's room, do you remember this? I think this was probably Frank Oz based on some biblical scenes, but how does Oz represent himself? There's thunder and there's lightning and so there's this fiery presence around a, a face And his voice is magnified by the electronics booming out across this room to terrify them. And Sinai would have been that, you know, multiplied over and over again. There's a great verse in Amos 3, verse 8 also. Amos was a prophet later in Israel's history. And he said, when God speaks, it's as if a lion roars. And this would be like a million lions roaring simultaneously and then turned up really, really loud. So at this point, Israel has seen God's power. Remember, they've seen ten miracles in Egypt. They've seen God in the pillars of cloud and fire. They've seen the army of Egypt destroyed in the sea behind them. They've eaten the manna, the quail God provided them. They've drunk water that's come from the rock. But now they actually hear the voice of God. And when God speaks, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3, this is the way it reads. Then God spoke all these words, saying, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We'll work briefly through these verses. Verse 1 simply claims that what follows is directly the voice of God, the voice and the words of God. Then God spoke all these words saying. So we understand the Jews heard these words from the voice of God. These are the same ten words or ten commandments that then Moses comes down on the mountain with later on the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So in that sense, these words are unique in history. The nation heard God speak these words, not through a prophet. God himself spoke the words, boomed out across the plains, and they heard it. And then those same words were the words written by the finger of God, it says, on the two tablets of stone Moses brought down from the mountain. When God speaks, this is what he says, I am the Lord your God. And if we just uh, cryptically say, what does this look like in Hebrew? It would be I, Yahweh, Elohim. Uh, When you read in the English Bibles, typically they take the Hebrew uh, transliterated into English, Y-H-W-H, and they make it Lord in our Bibles with all capital letters. And so, We say Lord with caps, that's their word for Yahweh, and that's his covenant name that's introduced in Exodus to Moses in chapter 3. If you remember, Moses at the burning bush, and God sends him, and he says, well, if they say, who sent me, who am I to say? And God says to Moses, you tell them that I am that I am has sent you. I am sent you. The eternally existent one sent you. And when we Right, I am, we come up with in the English transliteration, Y-H-W-H. So Yahweh's name, Yahweh, means the eternally existent one, the one who has no beginning and no end, the one who, independent of any other person, force, place, time, exists. Before all, he's it. If you take Y-H-W-H and you add, those are all consonants, you add vowels, and you change the Y sound to a J sound, you get Jehovah. So sometimes older translations might say Jehovah. It's a, it's a version of Yahweh, but this is God's personal covenant name. Sometimes you'll hear people refer to it as the Tetragrammaton, four letters that make a word or a name. Now, just FYI, in Exodus 6.3, God says that when he knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they never knew him by this name. God says in their day, they knew him as God Almighty, or in the Hebrew, El Shaddai. They didn't know him as Yahweh. When you read Genesis and it says Yahweh, Moses and God have written the personal name of God back into the stories in Genesis because they didn't know him as Yahweh then. El Shaddai. And the reason for that was so that Moses and Israel would know that the God who's speaking to us from Sinai is the same God that showed up and spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no question about this. The same God, known then as El Shaddai, known now as Yahweh, but in the text, called Yahweh in those stories in Genesis, so there's no mistake, this is one and the same God. We knew him by this name earlier, Now we know him by his name, Yahweh, now. So the God of the burning bush and the burning mountain is the self-existent God, the one whose existence is not dependent on anyone or anything else. And briefly, I hope 
you guys find this interesting? I love this stuff, and maybe you say, eh, it's a yawn, don't need it. The other word he uses here is Elohim. The Hebrew Elohim, uh, Yahweh Elohim. So Elohim is the plural version of Eloah. And El or Eloah simply means God or ruler, sometimes used for angel. In the plural, most commentators will tell you, this at least means this. This is a way of elevating the majesty of the one it refers to. So to put the word God in the plural means you're elevating the majesty of the one you're talking about. And that's true but also understand this. You know, we, we say the Trinity is not directly taught in the Bible. There's not one verse that says God is a Trinity. But when God identified himself in the earliest pages of the Bible, he uses the plural form of God to introduce himself. So in the creation account in Genesis 1, Elohim creates man in our plural image. So God here, even at Sinai, I'm the eternally existent one, and I'm majestic, but also in the very name he uses for himself, Elohim, there's plurality. You can see the Trinity from the New Testament looking back into the Old Testament here as well. So, I'm the eternally existent one. And the rest of verse 2, he says... I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You remember in Elijah's day, the God who speaks by fire, who answers by fire, he's God. The God who acts is God. And here Yahweh says, I am the God who acts. I've already acted in your behalf. And when you read through the rest of the first five books of the Bible and the prophets later, God repeatedly refers to himself as the one who brought Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, I'm the one who acted in history. I spoke in space and time. I'm not a God who somebody made a claim of only. I'm the God who has interjected myself into history. You know the story. It's not make-believe. In the ten miracles, the ten signs in Egypt, also God had said beforehand what would happen, and then he acted to make it occur. If you read in Isaiah 41 and following those chapters, Isaiah lived in a day when pagan idolatry was rife throughout all of Israel. It's a huge issue in Isaiah's day. And so God says through Isaiah in the second half of his book, over and over again, he says, the one that can tell you accurately the future, that's God. The one who can tell you what will happen accurately before it does, that's God. And in the ten miracles or signs in Egypt, ten times God said, this is going to happen. And it did because he was the God acting to bring it about. So he was the God who acted and he was the one who told them beforehand, this is what will happen. This is the true God, and he acts. Now, probably as important as the fact that he acts is the fact that when he acted, he was delivering them from slavery. It wasn't just power. The, the purpose of the power was to bring them out of slavery. So when they stand around Mount Sinai, we extrapolate from a number that's repeated several times that about 600,000 men left Egypt in the Exodus. 
And from that we say probably one to two or two and a half million Jews in the Exodus, if you extrapolate from the 600,000 men. So there's a million to two million people on the plains surrounding Mount Sinai who were slaves in Egypt, and now they're free. God freed a generation and a nation when he acted. He delivered them from the harsh service and abuse of slavery in Egypt. He saved untold numbers of children from infanticide under Pharaoh's edict. You remember Pharaoh had said, kill all the male children at birth. So Yahweh not only acts on Israel's behalf, but his actions are redemptive. He doesn't just display power. He doesn't just oppose Pharaoh. He doesn't just act to act. He acts to save, to redeem, to bless, to give life, as well as to keep the promises he'd made to the patriarch. So, God says to Moses and Israel, I'm the true, eternally existent God. I'm the real God. I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God who acts in space and time. I'm the God whose actions are redemptive. Therefore, he gets to the first command. This is all descriptive. He gets to the first command there in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So the first command after God's description of himself is have no other gods before me. Since I'm the one true God whose existence is seen through redemption, have no other gods before me except no substitutes. Uh, This was a challenge to the Jews because they'd been worshiping the gods of Egypt. We know this in Exodus 12, 12, when God in one of the judgments is bringing about the death of the firstborn. God says there that he was acting against all the gods of Egypt. He's executing judgment. Each one of those acts or those miracles in the Exodus account leading up to the Exodus, God said, I'm confronting the so-called gods of Egypt. I'm judging them. I'm showing them deficient and wanting. I'm showing my reality and that they don't exist at all. There's no opposition in Egypt from the gods of Egypt against what I'm doing. Later, a generation later in Joshua 24, 15, when Joshua is helping the children of Israel enter into the land of promise, he tells them, put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. There was still that temptation in Joshua's day, a generation later, to think about or entertain ideas about the gods they'd left behind in Egypt. So for the Jews to entertain the thought of following other gods, it was to leave their senses because they'd seen the miracles. They'd seen God act. Moses had said, this is what God will do. And then he did it and he redeemed them. And it was no accident that God chose all this to occur in Egypt in the time frame that he did. Remember that Egypt is the strongest nation on the earth. At the Exodus, Egypt is the big guy on the block, on the planet. And therefore, to the nations in the world at that time, they assumed that the gods of Egypt were the strongest gods. Remember in those days, for every culture, every nation... There were gods of the mountains and gods of the valleys. There were gods for this and gods for that. But the strongest nation was assumed to have the strongest gods. 
So when God confronts the gods of the Egyptians, he is de facto confronting, as it were, the best of the so-called gods this world had to offer. So the Jews knew Yahweh has confronted the best of the best of that which could be called gods on this earth, and there was no opposition. There was no voice. No one paid attention. God acted and brought about redemption. So God essentially says, there are no other gods. So, have no other gods before me. And if we just think with cool logic and rationality, that makes sense. God's proven he's God. So he says, have no other gods before me. The New Testament bears witness to this same thing. We said each week we'd look at a biblical illustration, we'd look at the command, we'd look at the New Testament affirmation. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 38, one of the Pharisees who was a lawyer, this was a sharp, smart guy, goes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And so Jesus answers and says, You shall love Yahweh your God, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. Jesus there's not quoting Exodus 20, but he is quoting Deuteronomy 6. Uh, the other version of the Ten Commandments are in Deuteronomy 5. Immediately following that, Deuteronomy 6, there's what's called now the Shema or the Shema from the Hebrew word for hear, where God had said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's what Jesus is quoting here. God is one. There's only one. And you should love God with all that you are, all of your being. So it's a logical question to say, if I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, how much room is left for other lesser so-called gods? There's no room left. If I love the God that is with all that I am, there's no room left for lesser so-called gods. Yahweh is God. Jesus affirms the demand for the true God for singular worship. One God, worship him. You see this affirmed also later in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, verses 4 through 6, when Paul wrote the Corinthian church. This was a culture a lot like Egypt at the time. You know, this is the Roman Empire. It's the Roman culture. Just like Egypt, there are gods everywhere. There's temples everywhere and altars everywhere. There's idol worship everywhere. And the early church had trouble coming to grip with this. What's our relationship to the pagans and the paganism we've left? And what are we free to do or not do? And so this is a major issue in Paul's first letter to them. But this is in part what he says concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. That is, there are no other gods. And there is no God but one. Our God is it. Idols are make-believe in this sense. This is a big subject and it gets into demons and other things which we're not going to cover this morning. Paul's point is, they're so-called gods, they're not real. We know there's one God. He says, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, many things that people name, and worship as God. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, 
from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Paul's saying the same thing that God said to Israel, that Jesus said in the Gospels, there's one God. There's many so-called gods, but in reality, there's only one God. Now, that'd be a great affirmation, but it goes further than that because Jesus in the New Testament, this is a bold Bold, bold claim. Jesus claims to be Yahweh, Elohim. Jesus claims to be the God who spoke at Sinai. You will hear people say occasionally, Jesus never claimed to be God. And uh, that is a quite untrue statement. Jesus claimed to be God and the Jews knew it. And that's why they wanted to stone him on multiple occasions. John 1, 1, Jesus is the word of God. It was the word of God the Jews heard at Sinai. Jesus is the word of God, John 1, 1. And he is theos. He is God himself. That's the claim for Jesus. Jesus claims equality with God in John five eighteen. It was at this point the Jews picked up stones to stone him because he, being a man, as they understood it, made himself equal with Yahweh Elohim. Jesus said, I am before Abraham in John 8, 58. They said, hold on, you're not 50 years old. What do you mean, Abraham? Jesus says, no. Before Abraham, I am. Ego, Amy. I think I got that right in the Greek. I am. Same kind of identification as God here in Exodus. Jesus contains in himself, Paul says, the fullness of deity, Colossians 2, 9. Jesus gives the fire of God to his followers in Acts 2, 3. You remember on the day of Pentecost, when the wind blows through, it's tongues of fire above each of the disciples there in the upper room. God had revealed himself by fire. Elijah says, the God who, who acts in fire, he's God. Well, the fire of God you see in the day of Pentecost again. Jesus said, I'll go to heaven, I'll send the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. You'll know when he's there. You'll get his power, and the indication of that visually was fire. Tongues of fire, just like Sinai, just like Moses in Exodus 3. And also, Jesus delivers from sin and slavery. You see that in Romans 8, 15. So, the lawgiver at Sinai, who gave the ten words to Israel on the fiery mountain, is the same one who became the word of God in the incarnation, and then brought us words of grace and truth, John says in John 1. Jesus claims to be Yahweh Elohim, the one true God, and Christians worship him as such. We said last week in the introduction that the prescriptions or proscriptions God gives, what God commands us to do or forbids us from doing, are for our good. You know, as little children, when their parents tell them, don't do that, do this, you know, the kids have a mind of their own. They want what they want. And we're like that too as adults, aren't we? And so if God says, do this or don't do that, we want to say, but I want it differently. I want to do it this way or that way. But the truth is God's commands are commands for life. And when you and I give ourselves to honor God and to obey him, we get more life and freedom. It's not a a loss of anything, we gain. We gain the quality of life. And that's what God had said to them earlier. I wish that they would fear me so that they'd obey me so that they'd get life. 
there's a benefit to recognizing that God is God and we should have no other gods before him. To know who God is is to be free from searching the pantheon of so-called gods, gods who do not act and cannot save. You'll hear people tell you they're searching for God. You know, there's only one. End the search. Recognize that God is God. The God who acted in space and time and history, he's God. Your search is over. To know God as and through Jesus Christ is to know the God of all life, the Lord of redemption, the one who uses his power to redeem and to restore us to life. You know, in the Elijah scenario, the prophets of Baal cut and gouge themselves so that they're gushing blood because they think that will appeal to their God. The God that Christians recognize and serve is a God who says, the blood's been spilled, I don't want any of yours. I'm here to speak the truth, to bring liberation and freedom to you, to give you more life. So the true God acts, and he acts redemptively so that we get the experience, not only of more of him, but real, real life. To know that Yahweh and that Jesus, that the Trinity, that he is God is to be committed to rationality and truth and to have the benefit of truth, Jesus says in John's gospel, which is freedom. You remember we said, if you sin, you're the slave to sin. You're not free, you're a slave. If we're Christ's slave, we have the ultimate freedom because Jesus died that we could be free. God's presence in fire at Sinai is not the greatest reason to fear him. Fearsome as it was, God's ability and willingness, Jesus says in Matthew 10, to cast into the lake of fire forever is greater than the fearsome event at Sinai to fear God, God's ability and willingness to judge eternally as he must in the lake of fire, the second death. That is the greatest reason to fear him, greater than Sinai. God's ultimate display of power was not the trembling, rumbling giving of the law at Sinai. As impressive as that was, it was the incarnation, death, and resurrection of his son, Paul says in Romans 1, 4. And God's greatest word was not that spoken on Sinai, significant as it was, and, and freeing. As it is, it was the Word made flesh who lived among us, John 1, 14. Yahweh, he is God, they said, when the fire of heaven came down to Elijah's single prayer. Yahweh, he is God. Jesus, he is God. Is this exclusive? It's absolutely exclusive. Is it offensive? For many people, it is offensive, certainly. Is the exclusive, offensive God what everyone around us needs? Absolutely. He's the God of life. In Elijah's day, the God who answered by fire, he was God. And the God who acts in space and time, he is God. God revealed as Yahweh at Sinai, revealed as Jesus Christ in the incarnation, has acted in space and time. He redeemed Israel. In the Exodus, he redeems us through conquering sin and death in his crucifixion and resurrection. Yahweh is God, so we shall have no other gods before him except no substitutes.
And if you're here today and you're not sure where you stand with God, um, the Lord is it. I, I, you know, you want people to take application from what you say because God's word is transformative. It's true. It's true when he spoke it. It's true today. It's what he uses to change us from the inside out and give us freedom. The first step of freedom for any of us is to recognize that God is God and to submit our wills to his will and to say, God, I'm not what I should be. I see that. Thank you for Jesus' death on the cross on my behalf. Thank you that God became man and God took care of the sin that I see in myself because your 10 words pointed out to me. But freedom begins by acknowledging that God is God. And that he's done something for us redemptively, acting in history and space and time, sending a son to pay the penalty due our sins. That's the beginning of freedom. And then for us, as we've entered into that relationship through faith in Christ, then it becomes this growing relationship where whether it's the ten words or the other commands in the scriptures, where we realize more and more fully, God's word means life for me. When I see the truth and I obey it in Jesus' name, I get more and more life. Father, thank you that you are not only uh, God, but you're a God that's not distant and far off. You're a God not only who's acted in history, but you became one of us. Lord, you did so redemptively. Just as you sent fire from heaven to earth, Lord, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, from heaven to earth to bear the penalty due our sins so that we could be restored and reunited to you. Lord, thanks that you've conquered the ultimate form of slavery, death itself. God, we ask that we see the work of your spirit in our lives to conquer sin within. Help us to walk as those freed by Jesus himself. Lord, thanks that there is no God but God. Lord, help us to entertain no substitutes in Jesus' name. Amen.